Romans 12, 14. If you guys want to turn to your Bibles uh, or open your Bibles and turn to that specific scripture, you can. But we're going to do something first. Uh, so as you're getting that out, maybe grab a pen if you have a pen. And uh, hopefully you have a, either a, the back of the bulletin or a scratch piece of paper. And here's the exercise we're going to do uh, right away. And this is going to be a different one, one that uh, I'm going to maybe guess that you have not done in church before. Um, so here's the exercise. I want you to think for about 30 seconds, kind of think in your own mind, and then I want you to write down the name of someone in your life that pushes your buttons. <laughs> it's kind of a dangerous exercise to do at church, isn't it? Uh, so write down the name, and you can write it very small, or you can just write uh, in hieroglyphics or something if that person's sitting next to you and you don't want them to see it. Uh, so the name of somebody, wow, uh, the name of somebody in your life that if you were really, really honest, if you took like a step back and were real honest with yourself, somebody that you could kind of do without in your life, somebody that frustrates you, somebody that irritates you, this will all make sense in about 20 minutes for right now. I want you just to think about that, and if you don't want to write that name down, that's fine, but think about that for a minute. Think, do you have that person in your life? So I'll give you a couple of seconds to do that here. Again, you don't have to necessarily write it down, but if that kind of helps you to think through that process, that's fine. So what's funny about this is uh, when I asked uh, people to do this, most people were like, I don't have those people in my life. My guess is most of us probably a name came to mind eventually, that there was a name, a picture, a, a face of somebody in your life, somebody that you come into contact with, maybe weekly, maybe daily, maybe, you know, maybe it's from past, whatever, but that name kind of came to mind and you begin to think, man, that is somebody that just gets under my skin. That is somebody that uh, when they come into the room, it makes me want to leave the room, all right? So hold on to that name. Uh, if you wrote it down, you've got it there in front of you. We will come back to this in about 20 minutes, like I said. But let's turn, uh, if you have not already, to Romans 12, 14. This is what the scripture says. Short and sweet today, and we'll spend our time with this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So from, uh, from the crowd, we need a little bit of participation this morning. When I say persecution, when I bring up the idea of persecution, when we read this verse, what do you immediately think of? Throw some things out. What is persecution? Humiliate. Okay, what else? Suffering. Suffering. Good. What else? When we think of persecution. Ostracizing. Good. A couple more. Criticism. Some, uh, same thing? Gossip, good. To demean. to demean, good. Okay, so here's the definition of persecution. The act of persecution is defined as inflicted violence, hostility, or ill treatment because of race, political, or religious belief. Inflicted violence, hostility, or ill treatment because of race, or political, or religious belief. So, in our scripture here this morning, in the Greek, the word uh, used is dioko, and carries the same idea as uh, the, the definition that I just gave. It's a little bit more nuanced, though, because it comes from the uh, root word meaning to pursue. 
So when you read it in this context, when we read verses, uh, when we read verse 14, those who persecute you would be those who pursue you with hostility and or intention to physically or socially harm you. So there's a pursuit behind it. So those who pursue you with hostility uh, and intention to physically or socially harm you. So after we kind of get this understanding, after we look through this idea of persecution, gain an idea of what biblical persecution is, and as I've been thinking about this over the last week, uh, I've begun to wonder if if persecution is a really felt reality in our context here in Spokane in 2015. The biblical idea of persecution, if that's a really felt reality for many of us here in Spokane in our context. So uh, the other day I was watching Little Einsteins. How many people know what Little Einsteins is? Just got up early, turned on some Little Einsteins by myself, trying to learn some stuff. Um, uh, No, my boys were up and... uh, my boys were up, and uh, Berg, who tends to be um, our, our son, he's the middle, uh, he's a, a twin, six years old, but is the middle child of the three, and tends to be uh, the son that carries the most sermon analogies along with him. Um, Berg was up, and for whatever reason, since he has been a little boy, he enjoys watching TV upside down. Anybody else's kids do this? Just Berg. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Sermon analogies just come with this kid. So he gets in this like position. He throws his feet up on the back of the couch and then does just a handstand or a headstand, no hands, just kind of like this, but upside down, and watches. he watched 15 minutes of Little Einstein's just upside down. Uh, and, and I have, I mean, if I were to do that, I would be barfing all over the place. There's no way my body could handle that. Uh, just, I would get vertigo. It would be crazy. But um, he does this. And this is the perspective with which he watches a lot of TV from. Whenever, I mean, we put on a show before bed, oftentimes he'll kick those feet up. He's upside down just watching and, and totally, totally comfortable in that. And so I was just kind of there, and, and we used to be like, hey, Berg, you can't do that. You're going to get sick or blind or something. Something's going to happen to you. <laughs> um, now, after six years, we're just like, oh, I guess that's just what you do, and that's fine. <laughs> Let's just fight some of the battles, not all of them. Uh, but so I was there, and, and we were kind of sitting there watching the show. It was early. It was like 6.30, and, uh, and he's uh, upside down. And I just begin to kind of sense um, this idea that Berg is watching the world or watching the show from a different perspective, from being upside down. It's a different perspective. And it reminded me that when we read Scripture, I think we oftentimes need to read Scripture from a different perspective, maybe what I would call the upside-down perspective that we need to realize that we read uh, what we read, we read it from a very different place and time and context than when it was written. So when we read upside down from that different perspective, then biblical persecution we see is much different than our common day reality. So here's what I mean. Paul is speaking in this context to a subversive, oppressed minority of people. He's writing to those who have chosen kingdom over empire and have therefore opened themselves to the truest sense of biblical persecution. They were sought out, pursued, and when found, they were oftentimes subject to social and physical harm. I would argue that this is not our reality. 
that this is not our perspective. That if anything, by nature of living in America, our perspective would probably be more similar to the Roman than the Jew living under Roman occupation. I think we have to be honest with ourselves and say that we are citizens of a superpower, that we are born among conquerors, that we live in an empire, and because... I don't think it's as easy just to read the Bible and conclude that we can take everything just at face value. That we need to read upside down and remember that the majority of Scripture is a narrative told from and to the perspective of the poor, the oppressed, the enslaved, the conquered, the occupied, the defeated. And that's just not our reality. That's not the world that most of us live in right now. So don't get worried and start thinking that Kevin doesn't believe the Bible is the inspired word or divine word of the Lord for us today. I believe it is, absolutely, wholeheartedly. But I also don't believe it's just that simple. I think context is important, and so we always need to read with a sense of time and space and language in in mind. To me, when I was there on that couch watching Berg watch TV upside down, I began to think, man, we need to read the Bible upside down sometimes from a different perspective perspective. I don't think that we can look at Romans, uh, it's not up there, but it was up there, Romans 12, 14, and then just point to our atheist boss and his anti-Christian jokes as the persecution that we experience every day. Certainly it's uncomfortable, certainly it's awkward, it might be frustrating, it might be hurtful, but I don't think that that is biblical persecution in the way that Paul is writing about it. Now, this is not to say that biblical persecution doesn't exist in our world. Certainly, that type of persecution is in our world. In fact, according to the United States Department of State, Christians in more than 60 countries face persecution from their governments or surrounding neighbors simply because of their belief in the person of Jesus Christ. There is a website called Open Door, uh, and I've got this slide up here. It's not the website slide, but uh, these are Open Door is a... um, It's a website that is geared towards the persecution of Christians in our world, and it uh, brings kind of news clips and uh, different ideas of where persecution is being felt, what's going on. These were four or five headlines that were, um, I scrolled through maybe two or three pages of uh, different news headlines that Open Door is covering currently right now. These were some of the headlines uh, that were on there. Trial starts, uh, that says trail, that's not what it's supposed to say, but trial starts For two South Sudanese pastors, extremists in Bangladesh increase pressure on Christians and others. Mexican Christians return home after five years of forced displacement. Evangelical children face discrimination. Church leader arrested for reading Bible. In Libya, Islamic State claims killing of 30 Ethiopian Christians. That is biblical persecution. That is being felt in over 60 countries around the world. But again, I would argue that I don't think these types of things are being felt here in Spokane in 2015. In fact, I would argue that there are very few isolated events and circumstances that I think we could truly agree were persecution or that uh, were uh, times when we were persecuted. Now, what we do face is the reality that we live in a post-Christian culture and that we often face anti-Christian rhetoric and agendas And although not persecuted, we live in a world that often questions and sometimes militates against our beliefs. Absolutely, I think we all feel those things. 
And on a personal level, there might be mockery, there might be political ideals that encroach on what we presume to be our religious freedoms, there might even be intolerance, but we are not currently being pursued. pursued. We are not being driven out of our country, and none of us fear for our very lives because of our belief in Jesus Christ. I think there's been an idea, one that uh, I even can point back to about six years ago that I talked about, that I propagated in some way, that if you were truly uh, following Christ, then you will experience persecution. I've often heard statements with the intention to convict sound like this. If you have not experienced persecution, then you have to ask yourself, are you truly living for Jesus? I actually don't know if I believe this to be true anymore. I think it's very, very possible to live out an authentic faith without experiencing biblical persecution. And in fact, I would guess that many of us here this morning live this very type of life, an authentic faith in Jesus Christ without experiencing true biblical persecution. So, with that said, if we can all kind of agree that we are not being persecuted in the way that people around the world are, in the way that maybe Paul is writing into this context, then how can or how does this verse speak to us today? How do we read something like Romans 12, 14 and take truth away from it? And I would argue that this verse is about even more than persecution. The broader narrative and theme of this this verse is about posture. It's about posture. Romans 12, written in the context of the persecuted first century church, and then when read by us in the 21st century American context, I believe this verse is dragging into the light, how do we posture ourselves toward our enemies? How do we posture ourselves toward our enemies? This is how we're going to spend the rest of our morning. Posture is an interesting thing. In a book uh, recently that I, or not recently, but I read it, uh, actually right when I came onto staff here, Russ gave me a stack of like seven books when I was hired. This is a typical Russ thing to do. said, good luck, study, begin to understand what we're doing, but he handed me this, and and the one that I was most drawn to was a book called The Tangible Kingdom, written by a guy named Hugh Halter and Matt Smay, and they contend this, they say this in their book, message is what we know, posture is what we believe and feel. Message is what we know, posture is what we believe and feel. So I'm guessing the majority of us, if you have been following Jesus for uh, any amount of time, I would guess the majority of us know the biblical message about enemies. But how many of us actually posture ourselves in the correct way? You see, it's one thing to be able to recite Jesus' teaching about enemies and a completely different thing to show our belief in that message by how we posture ourselves toward them. Now, when I say enemies... I think most people probably immediately think of this behind me. <laughs> who knows who that is? What, can anybody give me his name? <laughs> nice. Ivan Drago, the Russian boxer from Rocky IV. Perhaps the greatest enemy in the history of cinema right here. Ivan Drago. Going against everything that we believe in in America right there. Trying to fight Rocky. Uh, spoiler alert, Rocky beats him in the end. Sorry if you've not seen it. You may not think he does, but he does in the end. Uh, I think a lot of us think of enemies this way. 
that person that is, uh, that, that's against us, that person that's trying to fight us all the time. But in reality, who are our enemies? When we say enemies, who are those people in our life? G.K. Chesterton says this, The Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also love our enemies, probably because generally they are the same people. <laughs> I think said with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek in there, but um, I also think that that gets at something. The Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also love our enemies, probably because generally they are the same people. When we think of enemies, I think we can't just uh, imagine those people who are against us or who hate us, but maybe the people who we, in fact, have demonized. That coworker that rubs you the wrong way. Think about the people in your life that cause you frustration, that annoy you, that, dis- uh, that you dislike because their ideology is different or because they're a know-it-all, or maybe they are the person who has hurt you or wounded you in the past. I think most of us live in a world where these are our enemies, not those hunting us down, looking to sabotage, looking to injure us. I think it's much more subtle and nuanced than that. Our enemies are the people that we don't trust, the people that make us cringe when they walk into the room, the people we try not to make eye contact with, the people that we talk about behind their back, the people we wish we didn't have to deal with. Honestly, I think the closest thing that many of us have to enemies might be that person's name that you wrote down on the piece of paper when you came in here. The people that we have demonized in some way. The best definition for enemy that I have read recently, especially as I've been studying this, comes from a guy uh, named Zond, and he says this, an enemy is someone whose story you have not heard. An enemy is someone whose story you have not heard. Last week in small group, we were uh, going around and sharing stories, uh, updates about our week, and um, we have a gal in our small group, we'll call her Dina, primarily because her name is Dina. Um, That's funny, guys. We're trying to have fun here today. Uh, Dina has become a really close friend over the past two years, and uh, Dina recently had hip surgery, and uh, has been, uh, it was orthoscopic surgery, so she can kind of get up and, and move around. She was, uh, you know, kind of laying, laying down and, and had to be real careful for the first couple weeks, but she's up now and moving around, can drive, so on and so forth, and she was out, um, she lives um, kind of close to like Corbin Park area, and she was out uh, mowing her lawn just this last week, uh, mowing the front lawn, and her neighbor who um, we have actually, over the course of two years being in group together, have heard many stories about her neighbor. This woman is like a classic Catwoman neighbor. Uh, she leaves her bottom uh, window open so that the neighborhood cats can just come into her house. She's very, very old, probably 80 years old, and uh, historically has been an absolute curmudgeon. Just a, a, a person that is not kind. A person that often questions what Dina is doing. A person that just kind of rubs you the wrong way. She's not somebody that you would want to spend any time with. And Dina has often told stories about, oh, I ran into my neighbor again, and she said this, and commented about this about my life. And it's just, it's never positive. It's always just kind of negative. There's this level of cynicism that runs through that relationship. So Dina's out mowing her yard, and the lady comes out, and uh, I, I mean, I kind of imagine seeing she's old, kind of, you know, hobbles outside and says, hey, can I borrow your lawnmower so I can mow my lawn? And Dina looks at this lady, and she, she has, like, congenital heart failure at the same time. She's like, you, you're going to die if you mow your own lawn. 
I don't think she said that, actually, but she said, it's, I, here, I'll tell you what, I will come over tomorrow and I will mow your lawn for you. Don't worry about it. I will come over tomorrow and mow your lawn for you. So against everything that Dina wanted to do, she said, let me just take care of this. I'll come over. Next morning, Dina gets up and, and heads out over, uh, you know, push the lawnmower over, gets kind of into this, uh, in this lady's yard, and the lady comes out with a cup of coffee, and the first thing she says to Dina is, oh, I thought you'd forgotten about me. <laughs> so, like, right away, you know, like, she's just fuming and just like, I need to get through this lawn mowing adventure right here. The lady can t- then pulls a chair outside and sits on the porch and ends up just bossing Dina around for the next 30 minutes about how she wants her lawn mode and where to take the clippings and all this kind of stuff. And, and Dina just said it was like one of those moments where you just, you wanted to hit an old lady. And that's not, you, nobody ever wants to be in that position. But everything in her was just like, oh, I cannot do this any longer. And at a moment, I don't know what was said, but there was this like tipping moment where she was like, I almost just stopped and just left because I knew the, the next thing that was going to come out of my mouth was going to be absolutely tragic. And Dina began to replay, and I thought this was a really cool thing. She uh, began to say, I started asking the question, what would Hope do? Hope is another gal that's in our group and maybe the sweetest person I've ever met. So Dina's like kind of in this, in this place in her mind and just says, man, what would Hope, who is this generous and kind and loving, uh, loving individual in our group, she said, what, how would Hope handle this situation? Uh, uh, and, and Dina says, immediately I just... I began to get the sense that I just needed to ask this woman questions. I needed to stop playing the script in my head, and I just needed to start asking this woman questions. So the lawnmower's off, and now Dina is engaging with this woman and asking, hey, you've, you, know, you, you lost your husband a long time ago. How was that? Do you have kids? Where are you from? What's your story? And they begin to talk about family this lady began to divulge uh, kind of her story about how she came over from Poland and, and uh, why she's in Spokane and, and the loss of her husband and all this kind of stuff. And as this woman begins to share her story with Dina, Dina's heart is slowly just kind of breaking for this woman and the life that she has lived, the fact that she is incredibly, incredibly lonely and isolated from the world. And Dina said... I, I begin to actually be empathetic for this woman. I begin to actually like her a little bit. I begin to think about other ways that I could help. This woman is like a classic hoarder, if you've seen that show. And Dina could see into, uh, in, through the backyard into her house, and there's stacks and stacks of stuff. You can't even see the kitchen, and there's canned food lined all over the place because she goes to the food bank often. And, and Dina began to think, man, do I need to ask to get into the house and help her clean? And Dina's heart slowly changed in hearing this woman's story. Dina found a way to actively love this woman, to slow down, to listen. And hearing this woman's story and seeking to do the right and most kind thing in that moment, Dina's heart was changed. And instead of staying cynical, she became empathetic. Instead of feeling entitled she became humble, and instead of angry, she became loving. Romans twelve fourteen says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. When Dina traded cursing for blessing, her heart was changed. Right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus, uh, maybe his, his most beautiful teaching on personal relationships, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In the book of 1 Peter, calling us to uh, set, or, or to be the example that Christ set, says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. A little while later, he says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Here is what is clear from these passages and the myriad of passages like them. Our posture towards our enemies does not include retaliation. It does not include judgment. It does not include threats. And it does not include curses. The posture Jesus teaches and models is a posture of love. And that type of love is not a distant, surface-level, hollow type of love that only comes with just words. It's an active, prayerful, forgiving, redeeming, inclusive type of love. It's void of judgment. And the only way that we can love our enemies in this way is because Christ allows us and because Christ strengthens us. Walter Wink says this, God's all-inclusive parental care is charged with an unexpected consequence for human behavior, We can love our enemies because God does. If we wish to correspond to the central reality of the universe, we will behave as God behaves. And God embraces all, even-handedly. Jesus shows us and Peter instructs us that the blessing of our enemies is not just an abstract type of blessing. It's not just a message that we say. It's a movement toward them, and it necessitates an active love. It's in the very posture with which we have, the posture that Dina's story showed us. I believe love for the enemy might be the most radical biblical teaching, and yet it's not a concept that I believe needs much more explanation. And so this is not a talk with three points on how to love your enemies. It's a message that's not intended to teach as much as a message of reminding, a message of challenging. It's a message with one point, and here is the point. Loving your enemy is not a state of mind. It's a posture we carry. I don't think we need points on how to do this. We just need to get over ourselves and do it. We know how to love. We just have to be willing to love those we once deemed unlovable. As Christians, our love must not be exclusive. 
Our love must extend to those we perceive as enemies. The reality is, is it's not our choice who we get to love. Our love needs to extend to all. We can start by ceasing to speak evil about them or cursing their name. We can start by being kind. We can start by praying for them. We can start by listening to their story. So take a minute now. Look back on that name that you wrote down in the beginning of the service. Or if you didn't write it down and you were just thinking about it, think about that name. Think about that person. Let me ask you this set of questions. Have you listened to that person's story? Have you forgiven that person if they need to be forgiven? How have you shown them kindness recently? When was the last time you prayed for that person? Have you prayed that God would change your heart toward that person? What have you done recently to show them love? Some of you may be sitting here thinking, man, I've done all of those things. I've listened, I've forgiven, I've been kind, I've prayed, I've actively loved them, and yet they're still an enemy in my life. They're still that person I can't stand. And here's what I say to you. Keep trying. Keep doing these things. These are the right things to do. Don't give up. Following Jesus was never intended to be easy. So I implore you, don't seek your own justification to get out of loving your enemy. Don't convince yourself that it's too hard or that it doesn't matter because it does matter. We are to live peaceably with all. And this is not a simple ideal that we strive for. It's a biblical mandate. If we are, willing to seek, if we are unwilling to seek and tr- uh, change and transformation in this area of our lives, then I believe we are being disobedient to the call of Christ. Whether you have experienced true biblical persecution or you're just trying to figure out how to love those in your life that you would rather not be around, here is what the verse calls us to. It calls us to a different posture. It calls us to a radical type of Christianity. It calls us to break the cycle of anger and frustration and contempt. It calls us to live with an inclusive and active love toward all people. Richard Rohr says this, Jesus says we have to love and recognize the divine image and even our enemies. He teaches what many thought a leader could never demand of his followers, love of the enemy. Logically, that makes no sense, but soulfully, it makes perfect sense. Because in terms of the soul, it really is all or nothing. Either we see the divine image in all created things, or we don't see it at all. Either we gain the capacity to love our enemies, or we acknowledge the truth that we do not love at all. Romans 12.14 calls us beyond knowing the truth of needing to love our enemies. It calls us to a posture of love towards them. Would you pray with me?